Can I ask you to please turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 24? And as you do that, I'd like to extend a very special and warm welcome to those of you who are here with us this morning as visitors. Maybe this is the first time you've been here at Church on Main, maybe it's the second or third time, but uh, it's a great pleasure to have you with us this morning. And I'd like us to open in prayer and ask for the Lord's help as we come to His Word. And as we pray, I'd like to ask you to do something. I want to encourage you to lift up a silent prayer of your own that God would speak to you from His Word today. Because I believe that He wants to do that. And you may not even be a Christian here this morning. You may still be checking this whole thing out. And, you know, all you may have is just a mustard seed of faith. Just a small grain of faith. But you are here in church this morning. And so I want to encourage you to take whatever little faith you have and just pour that out to God. Even if it's the first time you've ever prayed, that God would speak to you. That He would reveal Himself to you through His Word this morning. So let's join our hearts together as we pray. Father, we worship you as the God of all history. We worship you as the sovereign one. As the one whose decrees and whose plans never fail. We worship you, God. We give you the place of honor this morning. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... The revelation that you've given us. You've not left us in darkness, my God, but you've given us the light of your word that we might be saved. We thank you for it. And Lord, we pray for the work of the Spirit here today, tonight, and over these next seven weeks, my God, that the Spirit of God would come and do what only He can do, that He would enlighten our understanding that we might comprehend the Scriptures. Comfort your people. Delight your people with your word. God, correct us where we need correction. Lord, let us increase in our knowledge of you. And God, for those who do not know you, for those who are not yet saved, I pray, my God, for the work of the Spirit to convict of sin and to open eyes to see Jesus Christ crucified. And I pray that all this would be to your glory, that the Spirit would come and glorify Christ in these seven weeks. So God, we commit it into your hands, for we know that you long to reveal yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember when I first became a Christian, uh, my wife Danielle and I, we gave our lives to the Lord on the same night, 28th of June 1998. I was 23 years old, and uh, shortly after that I was introduced to the concept of the prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament. And clearly I'd been ignorant of the fact that such prophecies even existed, because I remember being totally amazed that hundreds of years, in some cases thousands of years, before the birth of Jesus, the Jewish prophets were prophesying with incredible detail, astounding detail, uh, the circumstances of the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, that 
process, as I began to be shown those things, and as I began to read the Old Testament myself, and I began to see some of these prophecies of Christ, it had the most wonderful pastoral effect on me. And uh, I'm glad that Andrew mentioned that this morning, that this uh, theme, though it has tremendously powerful application to those of you and the many visitors over the next six weeks who do not know the Lord as their Savior, uh, yet it also has an incredibly powerful effect on believers themselves. And that certainly was true in my case. Uh, For example, I saw that 740 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Isaiah had prophesied that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. That his way would be prepared before him by a preacher preaching in the wilderness. Of course, that was fulfilled in the life of John the Baptist. Uh, Isaiah had said that the Messiah would live a sinless life. He would be rejected by the Jews. He would be put to death. But in his death, he would die as a substitute for his people. Isaiah said that through his death... He would purchase peace with God for us by bearing our iniquities, our sin, upon Himself. Many of the other prophets had also spoken of Jesus. Um, uh, Some had predicted that He would be born into the tribe of Judah, of those twelve tribes of Israel. He would be born in the town of Bethlehem. Uh, He would spend time in Egypt and then return to Israel. Uh, Many of the children... Uh, would be put to death, the children in Israel, at, at the time of his birth, many children would be killed. Rachel weeping for her children, Jeremiah had said. The prophet Zechariah said that his body would be pierced as it was with that spear when he hung on the cross. <clears throat> uh, a thousand years before Jesus was born, uh, the, 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 uh, the prophet of Israel, King David, Uh, In the Psalms, he prophesied that the Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced. A incredible prophecy. Um, He he prophesied that the Messiah would thirst, that he would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They would cast lots for his robe, for his clothing, and yet... Uh, David prophesied in the psalm, Psalm 16, that his body would not decay. Hallelujah. He he would be raised from the dead in in the same body in which he died. He'd be raised physically. Uh, And then I began to see, as I began to understand the Old Testament, that not only were there direct prophecies of the coming Messiah, hundreds of these prophecies, but there were also... Uh, many types and shadows of Christ in the Old Testament histories itself. And the magnificent thing about the God that we serve, because He's sovereign over all history, when He puts types and shadows of Christ into the Old Testament, He didn't need to do so using allegory. He didn't just tell a whole lot of myths in order to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus. No, when God wants to put a type or a shadow of Jesus into the Old Testament, He puts it into history itself. Incredible. 
And so there are many historical figures in the Old Testament and historical events and historical structures which actually are types and shadows of the coming Messiah. For example, the exodus of Israel out of slavery in Egypt is given to us in the New Testament. It's explained to us that that is a type of salvation, of being delivered from the power of sin and Satan into the freedom of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Um, People were put into history by God himself in order to foreshadow Jesus. David, King David himself, was a, a type of the coming Messiah, prophet, priest, and king in Israel. Um, structures uh, such as the temple itself and the dwelling of God in the, in the tabernacle and the temple, etc. That was a type of Jesus coming and dwelling amongst us. And in fact, one of the, the uh, topics that Mark will be preaching on in the evenings over the next seven weeks will be how the temple was a type of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Uh, The bronze serpent, if you know the story of Moses in the wilderness, uh, when the snakes were biting the children of Israel because they were complaining against God again, um, God said to Moses, I want you to make a bronze serpent, lift it up, and whoever, on, on a pole, and whoever looks at that bronze serpent will be healed. Then Jesus comes in the New Testament, and he looks 2,000 years back to that event, and he says to the people of his day, that that bronze serpent was a type of me. Because as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, and anyone who looked at it was healed, so the Son of Man, I myself, will be lifted up on the cross, so that whoever believes in me will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Amazing thing when you begin to understand how God was totally sovereign over all of the history of the world. And he placed into history itself types, shadows, and then prophecies through the prophets of the coming Messiah. And so, this will be our theme for the next seven weeks. And we need to ask the question, why is this important? Even if it is true, why is it important? Why should we give seven weeks of our lives to studying this? Well, I'm sure... That there is no one here this morning so ungodly and so foolish as not to care about where you will go when you die. Only the fool gives no thought to eternity. And it's something of that that is reflected in the statement that many Christians have made throughout the ages. And perhaps you've heard a Christian say this before, that... There is no more important question in this life than who is Jesus. And, of course, the very um, tense of the verb in, in that statement or that question indicates its importance to us. Who is Jesus? You'll notice it's in the present tense. Now, that's not to say that Jesus was not an historical figure. Like many of the the liberal theologians of the last century try to tell us. Men like uh, Emil Brunner, who said, actually about the historical Jesus, we know very little about him. But, said Emil Brunner, you know, that's not really important. All that's important is the impact that the stories of Jesus have upon us when we read them. Kind of an existential 
approach to Christianity. And of course, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the testimony of Scripture itself. No, the Bible is an historical document. It tells us things that actually happened in space and time. And Jesus was an historical figure. And so the question, who was Jesus, is a valid question. It's a significant question. It's a legitimate question. But the significance of the question as I framed it, who is Jesus, being in the present tense, the significance of that is that the central claim of the Christian faith is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He is alive today. The Bible claims that He rose. And after He rose, 40 days later, He ascended into heaven, where He is still seated on His throne as Lord of heaven and earth. And that He will return one day in glory to judge the living and the dead. And though in your heart you know, as I know in mine, that your sins will deserve the verdict of guilty on that day of judgment, though that is true, yet God has revealed to us in His Word that until that day, until the day of Christ's return, Jesus accepts poor, wretched sinners just like me who will come to Him in repentant faith. And if sinners will come to Him in faith, in humble faith, He will forgive them. And He will give them eternal life as a gift. That's incredible. That's why the Gospel is called Good News. Because it's a free gift if you will come in humility. And I must ask you this morning, have you done that? Have you repented of your sins? Have you turned away from a life of sin? And have you put your faith entirely in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Well, listen to the words of John the Baptist, the greatest of all the prophets. He said this, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. The anger of God remains upon him if you do not believe in the Son. Now these are indeed staggering claims that the Bible makes. They, they certainly are. But it is precisely because they are such staggering claims that it is only the fool who will not at least assess them. If the Bible is true, it means that you have a soul that will live forever, in addition to your body. And when your body dies, your soul will continue to live, and your soul will be transported to one of two places. It will either be transported to heaven, there to await the resurrection of your physical body at Christ's return, when your soul and your body be, will be reunited to one another, but you will be in a glorified body that will never be sick, never be tired, never know sadness, and you will live with God and Jesus Christ 
in the presence of God for all eternity in perfect peace and happiness and fellowship with all the saints throughout all history. That's a free gift if you want it. But if you reject that, your soul will be transported to a place called hell where, and I quote from the scriptures, you will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power where the smoke of your torment will ascend forever and ever and where you will have no rest day or night. You will go away into everlasting punishment where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now please don't be angry with me for speaking to you as frankly as I am this morning. Please don't let that close your heart and close your ears. I'm trying to answer the question, why, according to the Bible, is the identity of Jesus so important to us? Why is it important that we understand this? And as we begin our series, I want you to be under no illusions. The unapologetic, exclusive claim of the Bible is that your eternal destiny rests entirely upon your answer to the question, who is Jesus? Listen to the words of Jesus himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, of course, these claims, these staggering claims of the gospel, they are claims which, which each of us must either choose to accept or reject. And in that regard, whether you accept these claims or whether you reject them, I want to make a point to you as we begin this seven-week series, and that is this. The claims of the Bible, as illustrated by that claim of Jesus that I just read to you, that only those who believe in Him will receive forgiveness of their sins and everlasting life, and that those who do not believe will perish in their sin. That claim of Jesus is not meant to be scrutinized by you or judged by you in a vacuum. That's an important point. You're not expected to make a decision based on one sentence out of the Bible. You're not meant to judge the claims of the gospel without having additional information. God wants to demonstrate to you the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. Like most truthful claims in life, you know, they say the truth is stranger than fiction. Like many truthful claims, the first time you hear them, you're tempted to reject them or to question them because they sound so bizarre. But that is especially true when it comes to the, the claims of the gospel, that claim of Jesus Christ. We are tempted to reject that not only because 
It's the first time we heard it. It sounds a bit strange. But also because the effects of the fall of man into sin, the effects of our sinful nature is that we rebel against the truth of God. You have in your, in your nature, your fallen human nature, you have a propensity to rebel against God. You don't like the message of the gospel. And nor do I in my natural state, because the message of the gospel condemns us. It judges us as guilty before God. It's probably offensive to you if it's the first time you're hearing it. Because it says that you stand condemned before God as a sinner. That you're estranged from God. That you are His enemy. You're at enmity with Him, the Bible says. Because you have rebelled sinfully against God. Are you humble enough to admit this morning that that does describe you? But like other truthful claims in life, the more you learn about the man who made that claim, and the more you learn about why he made it, the more the dreadful and wonderful truth of that claim begins to dawn on you. My prayer is that that will happen to many of you over the next seven weeks. And that's why I said that I believe it's only the fool who refuses to give some time in his or her life to learning about this man Jesus Christ and why he made the claims that he made. And it's better to do that sooner rather than later because you don't know when you're going to die. And then it's too late. Now that is what today... And the next six weeks are about. This is about giving you a space, giving the people that you would invite as guests a space in which you can assess the claims of the Bible about Jesus. Particularly the claims about where you will go when you die and why it is only Jesus Christ who can save you. So... Having said all that, there's an important question that must be asked. And that is, where do we start if we want to learn about this man, Jesus Christ? Where do we go for the truth? Where can we find out? Where can we discover why his life, his death and his resurrection are still so significant to us in the year 2014? How can we learn the truth about Jesus? Because there are many religions in this life that claim to hold the truth. There are many claims of truth in this world. And then there are many New Age teachers who would love to sell you their book. To teach you the way of truth in life. How to transcend the the finitude of this life where we all feel that we're just heading towards death. Many people try to tell you how to make sense of that. And then even within so-called Christendom, there are many voices that conflict with one another about who this man Jesus Christ is. And about what he came to do 2,000 years ago. Who are you going to believe? I mean, go onto the internet and do a Google search on who is Jesus. You'll get 100,000 different opinions. 
Who can you trust? You don't even know if you can trust me. I mean, I come with some kind of endorsement to you. You know, maybe you're a guest, you've been invited by a friend, but they trust this church, so there's a little bit of endorsement. But you don't know whether what I'm going to say is the truth. Where can we go so that, so that we may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent? That's a very important question. Now, wouldn't it be amazing if Jesus Himself had answered that question? Wouldn't it just be so incredibly exciting if Jesus, while he was on the earth, had pointed to something and said, this is where you will know the truth about me. And I'm incredibly happy to be able to tell you this morning that he did exactly that. And he did so in a conversation that he had with two depressed, dejected disciples on a road between Jerusalem and and Emmaus, a town called Emmaus. And these two bewildered disciples were walking on that road, and Jesus appeared to them on the very day of his resurrection. The day that he rose from the dead, he appeared to these two depressed disciples, and he answered the question that we have asked. Where can we learn the truth about who Jesus is and what he came to do? Now these two disciples one of whose name was uh, Cleopas, as we will learn shortly. They had witnessed the death of Jesus in Jerusalem only a few days before that. And it, it had absolutely flattened their faith. It had flabbergasted them and it, it had left them totally confused and depressed. They did not know how to make sense of the death of their teacher. Because they thought... That this Jesus who they had been following and learning from, they thought he was the Messiah. And they thought that what the Messiah was going to do was come and revive the, the, the glories of the Davidic kingdom. Revive um, Israel as a powerhouse nation upon the earth. And so when Jesus died, it was certainly the most unspectacular ending to all of their misguided hopes. For what the Messiah was going to do. Now of course they didn't understand. They didn't understand the words of Jesus when he said. My kingdom is not of this world. They didn't understand that. And there they were. Walking along the road. Dejected. Dragging their feet away from God's city, away from Jerusalem, away from the church, away from the other disciples, away from the empty tomb, which they didn't even know was empty at this stage, away from everything that would give them life, walking away from it towards this town called Emmaus. And we read the account of this in Luke's Gospel, the 24th chapter, and we will read that together now, beginning from verse 13. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went 
with them. And it certainly is my prayer for some of you here today and for many who will visit over the next six weeks that Christ Himself will draw near to you and walk with you, though perhaps you are busy walking away from Him. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know Him. And He said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? I mean, man, where have you been? Have you crawled out from under a rock? Everybody knows what happened in Jerusalem these last few days. They killed Jesus of Nazareth. Everyone knows. Have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping... We were hoping that it was He who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company arrived at the tomb early, astonished us. When they did not find His body, they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said He was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said. But him they did not see. From what these two travelers said to Jesus, they revealed two fatal flaws in particular in their understanding. Firstly, they did not understand who Jesus was. And secondly, they did not understand what he had come to do. If we say that another way, they did not understand the person or the work of Christ. And in the same way today, many still perish because of these two misunderstandings. And would you be patient with me if I asked you, could that describe you? Could it be that you know neither the person of Jesus Christ nor the work of Christ? That you don't understand who He is and and that you don't understand what it is that He actually came to do 2,000 years ago when He was born of a virgin into a human body? Well, may God be merciful to you and open your eyes over the next six weeks. Regarding that first misunderstanding, the misunderstanding of who Jesus is, His person, these two travelers took Jesus to be a prophet. They said He was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. But Jesus was far more than a prophet. Jesus was God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. He was the second member of the Trinity, the eternal Trinity, God the Son, clothed in a human body, the creator 
of the entire universe and the judge of the living and the dead. They misunderstood who he was. And then regarding that second error, the, re- the error of what he came to do, the work of Christ, like many of their contemporaries in Israel, they expected a political Messiah. They expected a Messiah to come with great power and overthrow the Roman rule of Israel and restore the kingdom to Israel, restore the, the glory of that Davidic kingdom that once was. Now just notice from those two errors that these guys had certain presuppositions about who the Messiah should be and what he should look like. They had certain assumptions which were incorrect. And having heard and seen Jesus themselves and having witnessed all the miracles that he did and all of the things that he taught the people, they had assumed that he would be the fulfillment of all of those expectations that they had of the Messiah. Particularly because Jesus himself claimed to be the Messiah. And so when Jesus died all of a sudden, it it brought a sharp ending to all of those nationalistic hopes of theirs. And the strange thing had been that it seemed as if Jesus had actually given himself over to death. And as they walked from Jerusalem to Emmaus, assuming now that Jesus was dead and buried and that his mission had been a failure, they talked with one another, trying to make sense of this all. And I must just say that this can describe many people in this life. People who have certain presuppositions or assumptions about who they think Jesus should be. People who take Jesus out of the context of the scriptures and say, I don't like the Jesus of the Bible. I don't like some of the exclusive claims it makes about Jesus. I'm going to set up a Jesus of my own that fits my life. Presuppositions and assumptions that send people to eternal punishment. Error which has eternal consequences. Because they take a Jesus from their own heads, they don't take a Jesus from the Bible. Verse 25, then Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? He said, if you guys knew the Old Testament, if you, if you understood and believed the prophecies of the many prophets about me, you would have known that I had to die. Ought not the Christ to have suffered? The Christ had to suffer these things and enter into his glory from shame. That had to be the case if you knew your Bible. So he calls them, you foolish ones, and you slow of heart to believe. And beginning at Moses, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in the scriptures the things 
concerning himself. What an incredible statement. Can you imagine pointing to the most historically verified document on the planet? The most controversial book in human history. Can you imagine pointing to it and saying, in those days, the 39 books of the Old Testament which they had, pointing to them and saying, that collection of 39 books is all about me. What a staggering statement. I asked you the question earlier, where can we learn the truth about Jesus Christ? Where can we find a reliable source about His person, who He is, and His work, what He came to do? Where can we find the truth about Jesus and about His significance to us? Well, here we see Jesus Himself give us the answer. And beginning at Moses and in all the prophets, He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning Himself. This is how God takes a person from ignorance and selfishness and slavery to sin and spiritual blindness to the truth. This is how someone takes someone from the power of darkness and conveys them into the Son of His love. The kingdom of of the Son of His love. That's how He does it. And every one of us needs that. He leads us as He led Cleopas and his companion that day. He does it by demonstrating from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 28. Then they drew near the village where they were going, and He indicated that He would have gone farther. But they constrained Him, saying, Abide with us, stay with us, for it is towards evening. And the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did our heart not burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us. Their hearts burned within them as Jesus opened the scriptures to them and he showed them all the things concerning himself. Their hearts burned at the reading of the scriptures. Have you felt that? Have you felt that before? Or has the Bible always just been a dead book to you and something of a mystery? God's Word is truly able to revive your heart, my friend. The entrance of His Word brings light. As the psalmist said, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You know, Jesus could have revealed himself to Cleopas and his companion that day by simply opening their eyes to recognize him. Or he could have 
performed some miracle to prove that he was raised from the dead. Look, I'm, I'm raised. But he didn't. He purposefully restrained their eyes from recognizing him so that he could reveal himself to them by taking them to the scriptures. God has chosen to reveal himself and his son through the preaching and the reading of his word. That is God's chosen way. Why has he done it that way? Because his word never changes. It never deceives. It will never pass away. It is entirely trustworthy. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is inspired. It is an unshakable foundation upon which we can build our lives. In short, to quote the scriptures themselves, the Bible is able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And that is why Jesus concealed himself that day. And he began in the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses. And then he worked through the rest of the Bible, including all the prophets. And he explained to Cleopas and his friend all of the things concerning himself. And do you know what that did to them? Before they even recognized that it was him. The scriptures alone. You know what it did? It set their hearts alight. And it turned their feet back to Jerusalem. Back to the church. Back to the people of God. Back to the city of God. Back to the empty tomb. Back to everything which gives them life. I pray the scriptures will do the same for you. A little later on, as we close, we see Jesus appears that same day, in fact, to the disciples who are all gathered in Jerusalem. Cleopas and his friend have just arrived back. They're about to tell the whole story. They get through some of the story and Jesus appears to them. Now, there's probably 120 of them in the room now. It's probably the same group that was on the day of Pentecost in the upper room. And what does Jesus do? He does exactly what he did with Cleopas and his friend. Listen to this, verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. There Jesus, he uses all three of the major divisions of the Old Testament. The books of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And he says all of the things must be fulfilled which were written in those sections of the Old Testament concerning me. Now listen to this. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Surely God has given us light by which we may know the truth. If you want to know who Jesus is and what he came to do, God has given you light by which you may know the answer to those questions. He has written the great things of his law for us. But the truth of the matter is, unless the Spirit of God visits you, opening the eyes of your understanding to comprehend the scriptures, they will always seem a strange thing to you. And perhaps... That may describe you, that you have never experienced that opening of your eyes to understand Jesus, to understand 
His person and His work. And I want to encourage you, keep coming over these next six weeks. If you can, come morning and evening. If you can't, listen to the messages off the website. As we go through the Old Testament with you, as we show you in the limited time we have, some of the instances in Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms, the things concerning Jesus. And may I encourage you to do one last thing, my friend, pray. Pray, my fellow sinner, that God Himself, the Spirit of Christ, would draw alongside you and walk with you as He did with Cleopas and his friend that day. Seek God night and day until He opens your eyes and your heart burns within you. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.